You're listening to Oliver King from the Guardian website uh, in conversation with Tony Benn. Tony Benn, uh, what kind of a conference have you been having? Well, I come for the fringe. I have got a pass after a lot of difficulties uh, on the floor, so I could sit on the floor, uh, and I heard Gordon Brown today, uh, but... Uh, my main purpose is coming for the fringe meetings. I'm doing seven or eight fringe meetings, and I find that very valuable because the conference has changed out of all recognition from years ago. Years ago, um, you know, decisions were made here, and they were then argued about in the cabinet and in the parliamentary party. Now, to be quite candid, the legacy of new Labour is that everything is decided at the top, and the conference is a sort of public consultation of a kind, but it has no meaning in political terms other than indicating to the government the strength of feeling in the party, but they don't regard it in any way as having uh, any legitimacy in the formulation of policy. So what do you hope to achieve with your fringe appearances? Well, it's, a, it's really a, a summer school in, uh, in politics, and you meet an awful lot of people with a great deal of experience. I learn a great deal listening to the, to the uh, points that are made. But if I look back, you see, and you get to my age, you see that it takes a bit of time for things to happen. I was thinking of one example in 1964, 41 years ago, I went to Trafalgar Square and made a speech in support of a very, very well-known terrorist, and I was suitably denounced in the tabloids. I didn't meet him for a while. Next time I met him, he had a Nobel Peace Prize and was president of South Africa. Or my mother, when she was born, women didn't have the vote and women, the suffragettes, were arrested and put in prison. They went on hunger strike. They were forcibly fed. Mr. Asquith, the Liberal Prime Minister, said in 1911, if women get the vote, it will undermine parliamentary democracy. And seven years later, they got it. So I think you, to look at the political process, you have to look at it from the bottom to the top. And the conference is a place where, um, you know, members of the party come and the government come, but in the end you know if you can build up a body of opinion that's really strong, it'll reach the Prime Minister, not through the conference, but it'll reach him through the posters. That's so what are the issues now that the government isn't listening to, isn't responding to, do you think they will come round to eventually? Well, I think New Labour is really um, a post-Thatchite party. In 1997, which was the last year I stood as a candidate, uh, the public um, voted Labour because they wanted to change, but the British establishment didn't want to change, and they thought that Thatcher's philosophy was safer with new Labour able to command the loyalty of the Labour movement than it would be under John Major, a weak leader with a divided party. And I think to understand new Labour, you have to see that. They, they, um, new Labour, Brown and Blair and Mandelson, concluded that unless you came to terms with what um, the multinationals and the media wanted, you'd never get office. They got office, but they didn't really get power to change things. And I think that's the background needed to understand the situation. And for the first time in my life, public opinion is to the left of what is called a Labour government. Most people in Britain don't want pensioners on a means test don't want students saddled with debt, don't want privatisation, and don't want war. And all of those policies are the policies of new labour. So the question is, when will they get the message? And how can we build up a body of opinion that means that they recognise they have to do something? We've seen stories this week that um, uh, Gordon Brown looks like the inevitable successor to Tony Blair. Uh, do you think Gordon Brown will deliver on the things that you've been talking about? 
Well, I have, uh, really work on the principle that the policies, not the individuals. And I think uh, if you're not very careful, all media coverage, will it be David Davis, will it be Ken Clark, will it be Gordon Brown, will it be Blair? I think that is a diversion, really. The um, politic, politics changes when uh, decisions are taken and understood at the top, uh, rather than whoever happens to be there. So uh, I'm dodging your question deliberately, because I think it's very misleading to look at it in terms of would it be better under Gordon Brown. He said to yesterday and today he's absolutely committed New Labour, which isn't surprising since he was one of the founders of New Labour, and he presents it in a slightly different way, but he is a part of that trio who set up New Labour, which the Prime Minister said at the time in 1994 when he became leader, he said New Labour is a new political party. He set up a new party like George Galloway, and I'm not a member of it. I'm a member of the Labour Party. I'm not a member of old Labour or anything. I'm a member of the Labour Party, and new Labour, we are told, is a new party, and so it is. You mentioned peace. How much do you think uh, the issue of Iraq will dominate Tony Blair's legacy? Well, I think the only thing he'll be remembered for is the war, to be quite candid. I mean, it was... Uh, we were taken to war on a on a basis of lies. Bush decided to go into Iraq before he became president. He tried to use 9-11 uh, uh, as an excuse and said it was Saddam Hussein. It wasn't. The, we now know from the Downing Street Memorandum, the Prime Minister was warned nearly a year before the war that Bush had decided and that the, what they had to do was to, to produce the evidence or adjust the evidence. So then the, the argument was Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, which he did not have. And we've gone into war. I don't know whether Bush and Blair imagined that they'd go through an open carriage in Baghdad with girls throwing flowers at them, but we now face the most determined resistance. And uh, I think it's uh, not only an immoral and illegal war, but a completely unwinnable war. And that message is getting through. I was in America in the summer, and only 44% of the Americans support the war. And in this country, you get Ken Clark saying the case for the war was bogus. You get Mings Campbell saying we should plan to get out. And really about the only one who still speaks as if it was uh, inevitable and it's going to be won is the Prime Minister. And I think he's absolutely wrong. What should he do, though? Should he pull the troops out now? Well, and what happened in Vietnam? 50,000 American soldiers were killed in Vietnam. A million Vietnamese were killed, and they just got out and we will have to get out. But the thing about it, it's not just that. It's that Bush now says he's uh, keeping an open mind on attacking Iran. And uh, if that were to happen, I mean, the whole Middle East would go up in flames again. And also the criminal side to it is that with a fraction of the money spent on the war, everyone in Africa with AIDS could have had free drugs. Or indeed, if for the fraction of the money spent on the war, the levies in New Orleans would have been made strong enough. So I think what's happened, and this is quite interesting politically, is that the issue of class has reappeared on the agenda. For years we told class didn't matter, we're all middle class. But look at those people in New Orleans, and you realise uh, that uh, it was the, this was a crisis exposing the gap between rich and poor. And that is an issue which, of course, is what the Labour Party is all about. It's not just about our values and getting together. It's about dealing with the question that's never discussed. Why are the rich rich? We always discuss why are the poor poor, but why are the rich rich? And the rich are rich because they exploit the poor. And that's an issue which really is absolutely essential to understand what's going on. 
if we pulled the troops out now, wouldn't that be a victory for uh, radical Islam? And that, that might be a very dangerous message to send. This has nothing whatever to do with Islam. And to try and turn this into a religious war is one of the most criminal things to do. Bush says God wanted him to be president, for God's sake. Uh, Sharon says that uh, uh, God allocated Palestine to the Jews as if God was an estate agent. And uh, Osama bin Laden claims to speak for Islam. This is a war for, for oil and power. And, of course, if you want to mobilize people, tell them it's about religion, because religion is very central to every country. So I don't think it has anything to do with that at all. And to try and suggest that this is the case takes you back to the Crusades. I looked up the Crusades just for interest. There were eight Crusades. They lasted for 175 years. The issue was that uh, Richard Coeur de Leon, who led them, wanted Jerusalem to be controlled for the Christians. And every single crusade failed. And where did they raise the money for fighting the crusades? They sacked Dublin. So the Irish War and the Iraq War are still linked together because the issues haven't, neither of them have quite gone away. You mentioned uh, earlier AIDS in Africa. This government has made a lot of... Um, uh, relieving debt in Africa. It's made a lot of trying to get n new forms of getting drugs to those who need them. On that agenda, do you celebrate what this government has done? Oh, I think the debt relief and all that done is very, very important. But I also think when you look at Africa, you have to look at a, a historical side as well. Ten million Africans were shipped as slaves to America. Ten million. Many came through my old constituency in Bristol. And uh, so, really, the poverty of Africa is a product, in part, of Western what, imperialism. And indeed, Africa was divided up by the European powers. That's why the frontiers have no relations to tribal limits. So just where the line was drawn in Paris between the French and the Germans and the Dutch and the Portuguese and so on. Also, the corruption in Africa, which is a real problem, is corruption uh, paid for by multinational companies who say to the leaders of these poor countries, uh, if you'll give us a contract, we'll give you money. And, of course, Africa is full of gold and diamonds and oil, and the people who got uh, rich on the uh, resources of Africa have not been the African people. So I think you have to see that politically as well. You can't just see it in terms, important as it is, of debt relief. You have also to look at the reasons why Africa is poor, and why so many people have become rich. And, I mean, that's why uh, uh, I think a, a socialist analysis has a relevance. It's just to understand why things happen and guide you towards what might be done. And I think the privatization of assets in Africa as a condition of debt relief is absolutely wrong. Of course, your son uh, is now has that brief. Um, do you think he understands that? Oh, he's done a very good job. I mean, I'd, uh, I'm extremely proud of him. And I heard him speak today at a couple of fringe meetings. I had a free lunch, so I came round to, uh, to, to hear him speak. His brilliant job is done. But I also think if you look at it more fundamentally and more historically, you realise that it's not just the rich countries helping the poor countries. It's asking this more fundamental question of why is there poverty and who's been benefiting out of the poverty. And that takes you in a... In, a, in a, a direction looking forward, a bit beyond the immediate issues of, of debt relief, which I welcome very, very much. We have Tony Blair's speech tomorrow. Is there anything he can say uh, that would warm your heart? 
Well, he's, uh, as I say, he will be remembered for the war. And, of course, the, the role that he's played has been to, I think, to dismantle a lot of the democracy in Britain. I think uh, the, the party conference uh, has lost its power. The constituencies have candidates imposed on them. Parliament is taken for granted. The cabinet, which when I was in it, used to meet for hours discussing things, is now meets long enough to be hear the Prime Minister's decisions. And so I think that the one constitutional reform for which he will be remembered is restoring the monarchy. He is the king, and he, has his, uh, he appoints everyone in the House of Lords. He appoints the Commission in Brussels. I mean, Mandelson wasn't con uh, taken to the Commons. He appoints all the members of the European Parliament because we vote... Labour or whatever, and he picks the candidates. And I think that it is a very authoritarian system of government, and then the repression of our civil liberties. I mean, that is incredible. And the whole thing is, uh, is done in such a way as to give people the feeling they're being managed and not represented. The Labour Party was a, was a party set up to represent people, and now, increasingly, people feel managed. And I don't think there's any apathy in Britain. I think there's a lot of anger that no one listens and a lot of mistrust of what people are told. And anger and mistrust are not apathy. Uh, they're very political, but they don't connect to the process in which the Prime Minister is especially associated. Tony Benn on that democratic note, thank you very much.